time for Coffee with the Chicken Ladies, a podcast for people who love chickens. Hey, everybody, and welcome. It's Chrissy and Holly from Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. We're here, and this is episode number 119 of our podcast, where we talk about everything chicken, family, fun, and more chickens. More chickens. We drink a ton of coffee. I'm talking a ton. But most importantly, we hug chickens every day. And we kiss them too. Don't forget. We brew coffee from a little coffee house here in Bel Air, Maryland. Holly Ann, what kind of coffee are we brewing today? French vanilla. Are you ready to sip some coffee and chat? I am. But first, a word from our sponsor. We have some exciting news to share from our sponsor, Grubbly Farms. This month, you can receive 30% off if you're a first-time buyer. I'm a long-time subscriber, and my flock love the Healthy Nutritious Treats. Orders $40 and more ship free. If you haven't heard, Grubbly's has a fantastic layer pellet and crumble feed. It's packed with plant and insect protein. It's perfect for those picky chickens and ducks. This offer does not apply to subscriptions and cannot be combined with any other discounts. It's a great time to try Grubbly Farms if you haven't yet. Use the code CWTCL30 for 30% off your first purchase. Try it today. Okay, so how are you doing? I'm drinking my French coffee and hanging out with my French sheep. I thought you were going to say your French best friend and I was going to say, duh, I'm Italian. Well, right. I'm French. (laughs) You have a French best friend. I don't. You're Irish. Oh, I'm French too. Oh, yeah. No, I'm tired. I'm a little jet lagged. Just got back. How was Mexico? It was very tropical. Did you have a pina colada for me? I had many. Thank you. Many margaritas and just any kind of tropical drink. I love Mai Tais. Mai Tais are delicious. They're so good. Yeah. I got myself in trouble though because I went up to the bartender one time and was like, what's the lowest calorie, highest alcohol drink you can give me? Oh boy. Mai Tai. Mai Tai. They go down so easy. So what else is going on? Working in the garden. I got my newest spinning wheel. Oh, it it came? Yep. Did you put it together? Not completely because it needs to be sanded and finished in places. Oh, so you're still using the new used? Yeah, but I love the new used. That's good. That's a good wheel, yeah. And working on some writing projects. And other than that, all is well. Okay. So if you're listening to our show and you're loving it, head on over to Apple Podcast and leave us a written review. It does amazing things for the growth of our show. While you're there, hit that subscribe button. It's another great way that you can help our podcast grow. If you're looking for other ways to support the podcast, you can head over to our Etsy shop. Check out our mugs and our t-shirts. You can become a patron of the show. Visit patreon.com slash coffee with the chicken ladies. You can check out our levels of membership. And the other thing you can do to help support the show is visit our show notes. Use our affiliate links and discount codes and buy products from our sponsors. Yay! Hey, Chris. Yeah. Do you like subscription boxes? Does it have anything to do with chickens? Of course. Then yeah. Let me take a minute to tell you about the Chicken Love Box. If you love goodies for your chickens and you, you need to go to chickenlove.com. I love the Mega Box. Tons of useful products for my flock and a chicken tea for me. You can't go wrong with a chicken tea. They are so cute and so soft. In the February box, I absolutely love the red iron rooster trivet and the seed block. I really love that egg timer. It's going to be great when I'm baking. And those chicken stickers are going to be awesome on notes I send out. Boxes start at $39 a month. They ship immediately after your order and shipping is always free. Such a great deal. Don't wait. Get off the nest and click already. 
Use the code CWTCL50 for 50% off your first box of a three-month subscription or more. That's chickenlove.com. That's chickenluv.com. Get your subscription today. Have you heard of Strong Animals Chicken Essentials? They make natural supplements for your flock. Strong Animals has used plant-based products and natural approaches to promote the health and vitality of backyard flocks. Their products contain organic essential oils, prebiotics, and other natural ingredients to support the immune system and digestive health. Give your chicks and chickens what they need to thrive with Strong Animals health products. Visit GetStrongAnimals.com today. The Breed Spotlight is brought to you by Murray McMurray Hatchery, defining quality for generations. For over a century, Murray McMurray Hatchery has remained a trusted family-owned business working tirelessly to ensure our poultry meet the highest standards. Whether you are an experienced enthusiast or just embarking on the journey, look to McMurray Hatchery for guaranteed quality rare and heritage breeds, low minimums, and all the supplies you need to raise your flock. Request a free catalog today. La 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 Time for the breeze spotlight, yeah! Yeah. This is because I'm happy that we're doing a 2.0. This is the one that started it all, our first breed spotlight. The white face black Spanish. Mm-hmm. I've probably told this story before. Maybe when we did episode number one? Maybe, but I like this breed so much that I used a vintage image of a couple. Oh, yes, you did talk about this in episode one. Of white face black Spanish chickens on my save the day cards when I got married. Yes, you did. I received one. I was invited to the wedding, so that was good. And that would have been a little awkward otherwise. <laughs> um, sorry, we can't record tomorrow. I'm getting married. What? You didn't invite me? Yeah. yeah. I think you were sitting right next to me, actually. Yeah. So the white-faced black Spanish, sometimes simply known as the Spanish, is a beautiful and rather mysterious chicken. This is a very old breed and the only one that we know of in the world that has a white face. We were talking about this the other day, too. If you're going to go with the white-faced black Spanish, you almost have to get a boy because they have the most unique of the look between the boys and the girls. Yeah. I mean, the hen is unique, but the rooster has just the next level up. It really with is, the yeah. Boy. So, I mean, you have to have a husband and wife pair like on the save the date cards. Honestly, that's one of the reasons I've never gotten them yet because I feel like I want to have a rooster with the hens and I need to make sure I have a space open for them. Yeah. The white-faced black Spanish is currently listed as critically endangered on the Livestock Conservancy's conservation priority list. It's pretty badly off. But once upon a time, they were a very popular laying breed in America. I can see that. Prior to and following the Civil War, the Spanish chicken was one of the breeds that was typically found on farms in the American South, the Mid-Atlantic, and even some of the more Western states. It's a Mediterranean breed. That is why it's for warmer weather. Before 1900, they were even used in early egg farming businesses because they were such good layers. They've always been regarded as a laying breed, not a dual-purpose breed. And they were also heavily featured in the earliest poultry shows in both the U.S. and the U.K. Not surprising whatsoever. Right. They also appeared in the first printing of the American Poultry Association Standard of Perfection in 1874. The show quality of this bird is next level. Oh, yeah. I'm not surprised that they were in those earliest shows in the U.K. and the U.S., The surprising factor here is how critically endangered they are. Right. The next step is to figure out a way how to get them out of it. If you've not seen them, look them up. 
They're used so much in American folklore, paintings and pictures. Well, right, like the ones I use for my Save the Date card. They're way more representative of the time back then than now. This is one of those chickens that I would love to make a resurgence and everybody posting on oh, Instagram. Yeah. Because when you're on Instagram and all the social media, you see all kinds of chickens. You don't see this one a lot. No, you really don't. And I do feel like social media is a big driver of heritage breeds right now. Yeah. So the Black Spanish is a tall and very striking chicken. They may be the tallest in the Mediterranean class. Okay. They're all black. They have white skin on their face, so it looks like a white mask. It looks like chalk. It does. Yeah. And then they have long white earlobes. So the earlobes are longer than normal. Very long. They have a large straight comb. In the hands, it flops completely over one side in like a little beret. Yeah. It's very jaunty. I'm not sure that I'd be exaggerating if I said the roosters have an enormous comb and waddles. They do, and it's one of their striking features. Mm -hmm. It's really cool looking. It is, yeah. They have long, slate-colored legs and feet, and they have a long, sloping back and a very upright carriage with a fairly deep breast. The roosters are weighing in at about eight pounds, and the hens are around six pounds. For Mediterranean, this bird is a bigger representative, probably the biggest of the Mediterranean breeds. When you think of Mediterranean, you're thinking four to six. So be prepared for a bigger chicken. Right. Now that white face, it does not fully develop in most cases until after the bird's first full molt. So if you are breeding or showing, do not be quick to cull these birds. You have to let it develop. It's so funny with all the speckled birds that we have now. After that first molt, they will be more representative of what they will be. And as they age, as I can see with this bird, they lighten up and get more speckled with each molt. It takes a while for that white skin to develop. Yeah. Yeah. We do not know the exact origin of these birds. Most sources guess that the very old black Castilian chicken is one of the foundation breeds. I could see that. It makes sense. Given the color, they're all black. The geography and the long-legged frame of the Castilian, I feel like you see that in the black Spanish. Now, sometimes you'll see sources saying that the white-faced black Spanish was developed in the Netherlands. Hmm. But our old friend Lewis Wright disputes this. Of course he does. Well. He has something to say about everybody, and it's usually he's disputing them. Maybe sometimes. He's one of the best authorities when it comes to breeding and showing at that time. He really was. Because he wrote so much. He was really like the quintessential chicken man. He was. Well, when you think about it, he was a wealthy white guy who had lots of time. To write about chickens. To write and breed chickens. That's what he did. So he wrote that the Spanish was already in England, but that the white faces were not so refined. The skin was not so clear and white as you want to see in a breeding bird. He needed a little bit more moisturizing cream. A little facial? Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> so essentially what happened is there was an importation of white-faced black Spanish from Dutch breeders. Okay. And that did help with the English birds, some fresh genetics, and it got them clearer white complexion. The early poultry historians and even the American Poultry Association Standard of Perfection, they all warn against any more breeding to exaggerate the white face and earlobes. So that's like a hundred years worth of warnings. We typically talk about warning with overbreeding every week. The more you breed, the more you have a chance of breeding something out and something bad in. Right. So if you don't have a very careful breeding program, right? Exactly. Well, essentially, all of them mention repeatedly that they believe the breed had suffered as a result of excessive breeding for the white facial features. That doesn't surprise me one bit. They believe that some other traits plus general hardiness have been bred out of the birds as a result. We talked about this in episode one. This is what happens. They're more susceptible to things that they wouldn't be without the overbreeding. Yeah, it's something to think about. 
The decline in numbers in the late 19th and early 20th century and the fact that there was a narrowing gene pool, that probably also has something to do with the low hatch and the low survival rates. But especially when a gene pool gets this small, you can't ignore overbreeding and you have to make careful choices. You do. Even with all the overbreeding, it didn't save them. They're still in a very bad spot. Right. They went through all this overbreeding to make these features stand out even more. There still wasn't enough interest in them to keep the breed alive. Well, I think because they were primarily used as a layer, what I've gathered is they were just supplanted around, say, the 1900s by Rhode Island Reds and other good laying breeds that weren't as delicate. The Rhode Island Red can survive pretty much any place in this country. Yeah. So here's what I've been wondering. Where did that white face come from? Somewhere in Spain. That is the exact answer. (laughs) But the Spanish are the only breed of chicken to have this white face. Though when you think about it, there are a lot of breeds that have white earlobes. Right. So I searched and I searched and I searched. And I finally found a 2018 study in the Journal of Cellular Physiology and Biochemistry. Okay. A little light reading. This is the title of the study. Genome-wide association study and transcriptome analysis provide new insights into the white-slash-red earlobe color formation in chickens. Okay, so this is just about the coloring of the earlobes, not so much about the white-faced black spanish. Exactly. This is the only study I could find that looked into the white pigment on the earlobes. Well, which makes sense with the face. Right. And so the, the researchers used Chinese breed, and I did not note the name of the Chinese breed, but it had white earlobes. Okay. Essentially, the study focuses on, and I'm quoting, the biological process of angiogenesis, which may directly give rise to the chicken white earlobe formation through regulating blood vessel density in chicken earlobe. Okay. So they think that has something to do with it, the amount of blood vessels. Amount of blood that's traveling in there. So basically, they're saying this chicken doesn't have very good circulation. They don't have as many blood vessels. Yeah. But they went a little further. Again, I'm quoting, we propose that downregulated TP63 in white earlobes may play roles in thickening the skin and decreasing the vessel numbers in the dermal papillary layer, thereby contributing to the white earlobe formation via paling the redness of the skin. Essentially, there's just less blood vessels. There's less blood vessels, and the skin itself changes because there are fewer blood vessels. Because the lack of blood vessels will thicken up the skin. Right, leads to the skin thickening. I mean, the authors note that this furthers clues about the white earlobe and perhaps the face formation, but there is a lot more to understand. In this study, they were saying this may be something that has to do with it, but this is the tip of the iceberg. And then when you think about it, this chicken might have that going on with their face. Exactly. Right. Because their earlobes and their face are the same. Exactly. So at least I found a study that kind of explains a little bit. A little bit of it. Let's go into laying. Everybody wants to know, are they still really good layers? Hens are good layers. And look at those white earlobes. They have white eggs, of course. And they're laying about 180 per year. That's not in my great category. I suppose for a heritage breed, that's... It's not fair to Midland. Well, you know, that's why breeds like the Leghorn exploded. And obviously the Rhode Island Red took Maybe off. But the number of eggs with the overbreeding also decreased. That's entirely possible, yeah. So they generally, as in most Mediterranean breeds, will not go broody. We can never say never. Never say never. And they're delicate. This is the thing to remember with this chicken. They were overbred for certain characteristics. So in that, there's a trade-off. 
and they became more delicate. The chicks are delicate when they hatch. So if you're hatching black Spanish chicks, or even if you're getting day old, you need to make sure they have proper heat and nutrition right from the get-go. Yeah. You have to have everything ready for them and get them right into their brooder, yep. have some vitamins and electrolytes in their water or Nutri-Drench. Definitely a Mediterranean breed, so they're very, very heat-hardy. Cold, not well at all. No, they don't fare well in the cold. They but- have a huge comb, huge waddles. And their bodies, I mean, they have the long legs, they have sort of a long body. They got a lot of skin there. Yes, and they have a more close feather. They don't have fluff. They will definitely be a chicken that needs provisions in the cold. Back in 1888, the writer John Taggart wrote in the New American Poultry Yard extensively about ways to protect the black Spanish from the cold and especially to protect that comb from frostbite. The comb is so huge and what they're known for, you would not want to get frostbite on the comb. Oh, no, no, no. And that was about 135 years ago. So what we say today about protecting these birds is nothing new. It's just that we have better technology. I don't understand why there's a big fight here. I'm pretty sure all those guys would have given a lot to have a radiant panel heater. Heck yeah. Yeah. So more about their personality. They're alert and active, and they need space to forage and scratch and do chicken stuff. They're an active breed. Like all Mediterranean. Right. If you work with them from day one, right. there's nothing to say that this chicken isn't a good chicken. Let's look at Barth with Jenny. Oh, right, right. Lipstick and chicken. Yeah. He's a white-faced black Spanish. He was a white-faced black Spanish bantam. Yeah. But he went everywhere with mm-hmm. her, did everything with her, and she loved him immensely. Any chicken can be that type of chicken. What you put in is what you get back out. And I have not seen a lot about them being skittish. They probably have a sort of reflex, just like most of the Mediterraneans, but they're not really regarded as skittish as, say, a leghorn. Right. Or as reactionary, I should say. They are great garden helpers. Oh, yeah. They're good show birds. They're very good pets. Yeah, they have a good reputation for personality. Yeah. They're good layers, and they're good on a homestead if you are prepared to give them the care that they need. Well, if you're in the north, you have to have heat panels. In the south, you're in their sweet spot. You know, I was thinking about this. And even in the South, you have to be prepared for cold these days. Yeah, of course. The way the weather's changed. If you're in the South, you need at least one panel heater. They're 50 bucks. Have it just in case. Right. I would also say that if you're in the North and you want this bird, let's say you want to do some conservation breeding because they need it. Great. But you're just going to have to modify your setup for them. Yeah. That means a really big run. Yeah. So they can do chicken stuff. And that means a lot of heat protection. Definitely. So let's move on to where we can get them. And no surprise here, Murray McMurray Hatchery has some beautiful white-faced black Spanish stock. When we talked to Ginger, this was one of the very first chickens at McMurray Hatchery Mm -hmm. that Mr. McMurray went out to find for his hatchery. I think he had a good handful of the Mediterraneans that he started with. We know for sure he was selling the Menorcas, right? Yeah, out of the back of the bank. And I think this was one of the chickens that he was like... I, early on, yeah. He also had Yokohamas early, yeah. I think. So yeah. he had a really nice taste in chickens. Yeah. So they're carrying on the tradition over at McMurray. You can get them sexed at McMurray, which means you can get that rooster and yeah. get him some hens. Yeah. So you could do a breeding stock from them. You can check the breeder's directory on the Livestock Conservancy's website. Google is your friend. Yeah. You can sometimes find some local breeders and just look them up. So there it is, the absolutely beautiful white-faced black Spanish chicken, the if, only one of its kind. If you have them, we want pictures. We want to flood our Instagram with pictures of the white-faced black Spanish. So send them to us. We would love to see them. If you're looking for a chicken coop that's produced in a planet-friendly, sustainable way, 
Trinestera. Each coupe is made from highly durable, 100% recycled plastic that keeps the equivalent of up to 2,000 shampoo bottles out of a landfill. Their clean, modern design will fit into any garden or run area and comes with an industry-beating 25-year warranty and a range of handy accessories. Simple to put together, so quick and easy to clean, and most importantly, red mite resistant. Your chickens will love it. Quick shipping from Amazon.com or Nestera.us. Use the code CWTCL5 for 5% off. Check them out today. Roosties proudly sponsors Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. We personally use Roosties products with our chickens and we're huge fans. They have their awesome nesting pads, do-it-yourself feeder and waterer kits, and they've just released their best product ever, a new chick feeder and waterer set. They have adjustable legs to keep food and water clean. They're super well-made, and the feeder even has a removable lid so it can easily be filled from the top. So if you're raising chicks or keeping chickens, all their products are available for prime delivery on Amazon.com. Check out the Roosty store on Amazon or follow the link in our show notes. Okay, so let's move on to main topic. Yeah. Yeah. This week's main topic is a listener's request, and we have a special guest. We are talking with Jeanette Berenger of the Livestock Conservancy all about starting conservation breeding. Enjoy. Today, we're going to have one of our absolute favorite guests on the show. We have Jeanette Berenger, Senior Program Manager with the Livestock Conservancy. And Jeanette's here because of a listener request. We've had several listeners ask how they can get into conservation breeding with chicken breeds. Jeanette, welcome back. Welcome, Jeanette. Hey, how are you doing? Doing great. Happy to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is chicken breeding, especially conservation chicken breeding, because there are a lot of breeds uh, needing help out there. And we recently did a census and a lot more chicken breeds are becoming scarcer. And we haven't quite figured out the exact reason why, but there's definitely a, a boatload of breeds in need of attention. So Jeanette did an episode with us in July of last year. I'll have it linked in the show notes where we do talk about the poultry census. There's a lot of good information in that episode, so and check it's it so out. it's sad, too, because you hear about these breeds that need such help. But on the other hand, it's inspiring. So it's inspired some of our listeners to want to start to help, which I love that. So can you start by telling us what it takes for the average backyard farmer to get into breeding for conservation? Yeah, I think the very first thing is starting with a breed that's going to set you up for success. We walk through the same process, even with people that just want chickens for the backyard. You want to have a breed that's going to fit your level of expertise, your infrastructure, and produce the products or services that you're looking for, and that it's going to suit the habitat or weather that they're expected to thrive in. And so, you know, a breed like a Brahma you might not want to breed them in a hot place. They're huge chickens. They're going to have a hard time radiating heat. And that's really not what they're designed to grow out in. But something like a white-faced black Spanish chicken with a huge single comb that's like a heat radiator, they can hack it. And so the first thing I go through with people is understanding what products do you want? Do you want an egg layer? Do you want a meat chicken? Do you want a little bit of both? And then what kind of infrastructure do you have? Chicken tractors, are they going to be free ranging? Because some birds do terrible in chicken tractors, others do terrible in free range. I have Crevcores, they wouldn't last a week in free ranging because they can't see anything (laughs) and every predator can just pick them off at their leisure. And then after you start asking all of these pertinent questions, you can whittle down to a list of a few breeds that might satisfy what you're looking for. 
And the very last question, which often is the first thing that people think about is, do you like that animal? And people often jump off with, hey, I think that's a cool looking chicken. Let's make it work for this system. And that's not how it should go. You should have a breed that's going to fit your system. And if it doesn't, be prepared to have more inputs for that particular breed if you expect it to thrive in a place that it's not typically designed to be in. And so once you get that list of breeds, then you can kind of figure out which one's going to work for you. For a novice, I wouldn't go jump off the boat with the rarest of the rare. Like I wouldn't suggest getting in the red caps right now because they're super rare. They need a lot of work. And please don't take birds that should be in a breeding population into a situation where you don't have strong enough infrastructure to keep the foxes out or the hawks out. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And if you're going to get into a rare breed situation, please make sure you've got good predator protection because I can't tell you how many times I've heard people that got into stuff and then they get wiped out by a fox. And I'm like, what did you get into them in the first place if you're not protecting them? So, you know, it's a little bit of an investment. If you're frugal and really think things through, you can have a pretty predator-proof coop with not that much more money than having something like without a hot wire around the base or something like that. Mm So, you know, predator proofing is really important. And for people that want to get into breeding, but don't want to hatch their own, if you're working with an egg laying chicken, that's not going to work because typically high volume egg layers don't sit. Exactly. So do you think you're going to have a Crefcore hatching its own babies? Think again, ain't going to happen. It might rarely, but 99.9% of those birds are not going to sit just like legerns. Although I had a legern hen that was a wonderful broody hen, but that is an exception. You cannot believe how many babies I put under that hen. And then one day she's like, you know what? I'm done. And that was it. And she wouldn't let any of the babies near her. And I thought she was going to hurt some of them. So that's another thing. If you're going to get into conservation breeding, are those animals going to be able to hatch their own? If not, you have to go incubator root or broody hen, and that means you have to have another set of birds around that are typically really broody and can hatch them for you. I suggest the incubator root. That's more investment in infrastructure because now you're going to buy an incubator, but you can hatch out a boatload of babies in one fell swoop, raise them in the same pen together. The dark side of breeding is Not every bird is meant to be a breeder. And so you're going to have to decide, can you deal with having to cull your birds? There are a lot of people that want to get into breeding and they're like, oh, well, I'll sell my pullets as layers and I'm sure I'll find homes for the cockerels. I mean, Um, I'm sure the real sides of this that before you get into it, you (laughs) really need to ask yourself if you have the ability to do that. You can't just toss these creatures out to nothing, you know, I mean. Especially now, you can probably sell pullets as layers if they're a good laying breed. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's the boys, right? And because I'm squeamish and I'm a vegetarian and I'm breeding a bantam breed, I have a gigantic run filled with Nankin cockerels. (laughs) I know that's not practical for everyone. That's just something that was my decision and my husband and I made it work. But Mm -hmm. if you're doing large numbers of birds, you're Mm -hmm. probably dealing with what? Like at least 50% cockerels? Yeah, if you're lucky. And the thing about conservation breeding is it is a numbers game. 
So if you're only going to produce 20 or 30 chicks a year, it's going to take you a long time to make improvements. And I would say if you're going to make any kind of improvement, minimum 50, better if you can put out 100, because out of that, only your top 10% are going to make the cut. And that leaves you only with 10 birds as replacements. As your program grows, you might want to maintain a couple of different bloodlines. With super rare breeds, it's best to try and maintain separate bloodlines because you can't always count on getting more diversity from somebody else's flock. Yeah. And that's kind of what I did with the Crevcores. I started out with three different bloodlines and they were all super inbred. And so what I did was cross the bloodlines on a very limited basis to kind of bump up the diversity within the flocks, but still kept three separate bloodlines. So like you take a son from group A and put that on group B and a son from group B would go to group C and then a son from group C would go to group A. And you might do that for a couple of years, and then you'll rotate again. That way, you're maintaining the bloodlines, but you can still have diversity. Because if you don't have diversity, you're going to have inbreeding problems and fertility issues. And I hear people out there that inbreeding is not an issue for chickens. I can tell you it is. Yeah. (laughs) It very much is. And you might be lucky. They call it line breeding when it works and inbreeding when it doesn't. That brings up a question, especially when you're talking about the rarest of the rare. Have you seen a lot of these super rare chickens have fertility issues? Like it would be extremely hard to get a big hatch out of one of these breeds? Oh, yeah. That's where we were with the Kref course. And interestingly, when we did our first culls, we took a look at internal organs and actually tracked the weights of the hearts, the livers, and the testicles. And when we first got going with the Krebs, the testicles were about the size of the tip of your little finger. And now they're like half the size of your thumb. Because as we've been breeding, that certainly improved the size and the fertility. And when we started, the fertility was around 50%. And now it's up around 85 to 90%. And the hatchability's improved quite a bit too. But through selective breeding, you can do that provided you've got the diversity to work with. So inbreeding very much, one of the top things that will happen is fertility will decline. But I wanted to share something if I can. So here is our Heritage Chicken Manual. And for somebody just starting to get into conservation breeding, This is a really great tool for you to be able to understand what you're looking for under the feathers. And we have methods for selecting for meat quality, selecting for egg production. And then every year, you're always assessing your chickens, even the older ones, because you want the best of the best to be in your flock. And just because they made the cut last year doesn't mean they make the cut this year. And so these are really great tools. They're free for download and you can use them for basically any chicken breed. And then we've got some other pieces on here. A lot of folks don't realize that they can actually mark their chicks. So if you have multiple bloodlines, but only one incubator, if you can subdivide the incubator or you're doing multiple hatches, we've got a really useful toe punch chart here. Toe punching is just a way to mark the webbing between the toes. With the chart here, you've got dozens of different ways you can mark chicks and keep the bloodlines straight. 
because leg bands and stuff fall off or a lot of times the birds grow so quickly that the bands get stuck in their skin. I hate leg bands, um, especially in young growing animals. Toe punch is a really great way to get started. And if you toe punch them within the first couple of days, it does not hurt them. There is no blood. They're fine. It's when you start working with older birds when their nerves and their blood vessels are developing in their feet, then that could be a problem. Toe punching when they're a day or two old is not going to hurt them and it permanently marks them. So it's a really great form because in breeding, you're going to want to track what's going on with your animals and track their characteristics and their weights. And if you can't ID them, how are you going to do that? The other thing I wanted to show, if you're working with a rare breed and there's not a group or a lot of folks that are involved with the breed, I'd suggest starting a Facebook page. I've taken the Crevcore Chicken Project from nobody talking about them to I've got like 1,500 followers. and nice. I, I list everything that happens, the good, the bad, and the ugly it's been a really great resource for people because there's very little written about the breed. And so I talk about eggs, I talk about production, and this is my favorite rooster right now. Oh, look at him. He's gorgeous. Yeah, he's like eight and a half pounds. He is a big boy. And his legs are thick. Yeah. And this is what we started with was birds like this. It's like night and day. That's a pretty good looking craft core. That's a good point. Using social media to your advantage, even with conservation breeding, even when you first start out, starting the page so that you reach out to other people that may be breeding, you guys can talk things out, you can have a conversation via social media and pick each other's brains kind of. It's a good system to put in there. Yeah, I run mine kind of like a blog. People will make comments and stuff, but I don't let people post on there. Right. Uh, there's another Crevcore place where they can do that kind of stuff for me. I just wanted to document what I was finding in the breed because there was very little documented about them. And it's taken me years and years to go through French publications and English publications to piece together what is the Crevcore, what should you expect from it. And that's been the fun part of the project, just being able to find out things that nobody else knew about. So I found that pretty cool. And your documentation uh, will definitely help people in the future. And when people so many years from now look back, they'll have so much more information to go by, especially for the Crab Corp, because you put that out there. And that's the, the amazing thing is having that little footprint for everybody who wants to start conservation breeding. So that yeah, next person has somebody to go to for help. And I love that point. I really yeah, do. And, and there's not that many of the old timers left. They're aging yeah. out. And I really didn't have a mentor. And so I had to kind of figure it out myself. And, you know, the really cool thing is all these little anecdotes that I pulled out from like French publications and old British publications. I see their observations in my birds. One little quirky thing about having white primary feathers in birds that are under eight weeks of age, they were seeing that in the 1800s, and they said, don't worry about it. But it was this little anecdote in this one British publication, and I see that. 
And then I also see red appearing in the feathers on occasion. And as it turns out, the birds that have the red in their feathers are always the biggest ones. And that's what they were saying in the 1800s. Wow. And they also said, don't worry so much about them passing on the red genes. If you hatch out enough of their offspring, you're going to get a bunch that don't have the red. And so you can have the benefit of the size, but don't worry so much about the color. Now I have a really detailed breed profile that compiles all of that stuff so people can learn from it rather than start from scratch. Because I work for the Livestock Conservancy. We have one hell of a library here, so I've got resources that maybe other folks don't. Love it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so with conservation breeding, it is a numbers game with the birds. But when you raise in large numbers of birds, that's also going to cost a lot of money. So if you think that initially you're going to make money on this, no, you're going to lose your shirt. Yeah. But when you can get your birds up to American Poultry Association breed standard, and you've got show quality birds, your $10 a dozen birds could go up to 40 or $50 a dozen if they meet breed standard and they're mm-hmm. show quality. Right. And I know a lot of people that have birds like that, if you're not willing to pay the price for those show quality birds, you ain't getting any. You can't improve the value of your birds, but when you get started and you've got a lot of variability in your breed, they're not worth a lot. You got to start somewhere. But when you go out into your pens and every single bird in that pen is outstanding, you've made it. But it takes a while unless you can hatch hundreds of birds every year, which few people might be able to, but I can't. I think the idea that some people have that they want to start it, I think this is really good for the reality of it because it takes a lot of dedication and a lot of hard work. If you want to take the easy route, say you don't want to hatch out lots of birds, but you want to have a breeding flock, but support their conservation, then rather than go into a hatchery, maybe go to a good breeder and get good quality breeding stuff. That's exactly what I did. Yeah, and learn from those people because you can lose quality very, very quickly if you don't know what you're supposed to be selecting for. I've sent out a couple of flocks of Buckeyes. They were spot on, as good as you can get. And within three generations, they were junk. You know, it really broke my heart to see it. Yeah, because they were wanting something that was going to lay more. And when I sent the birds to them, they were selected for meat not for egg laying. Oh, wow. But you can't win them all. I took this route because it was really the only thing I could figure to do with Nankins. You could not get them a few years ago when I started. So we drove to New Jersey, found a breeder who had really nice birds, bought a copy of The Standard of Perfection and Mm -hmm. read it over and over and over. But even then, so I got this absolutely gorgeous pair, but their offspring, I would say three of them have looked fully breed standard to me. So Mm. it's a learning curve, I guess, even if you start with really, really beautiful birds. I've learned things that I didn't even think about. Just like the size, you know, Nankins are running bigger than they're supposed to be. Yeah, they were a bit smaller when I was into them back in like 2006, seven. You were? Around. I didn't know you read them. Yeah, I had a flock of single comb and a flock of rose comb and worked with them a while. But then the Buckeye Project really took off and we had to make the decision. And that's something else for folks to think about is set a priority for yourself. 
don't spread yourself too thin because every breed, if you're going to keep multiple bloodlines and then you're going to have to have a, a place for the youngsters to grow out and then you're going to have to separate out males from females before they're finished. That's a lot of space. And if you have a small farm. That's yeah. what I found. I like the idea of like, go support the people who have the big time space and oh, buy yeah. their birds. Yeah. That's a way that the small backyard farmer can help. Well, absolutely. And don't insult them by trying to buy them for cheap. You're buying the years that person put into working with that breed. Some of them spent a lifetime working on a particular breed and you're getting the easy path. You've already got fabulous birds. And there's a Seabright breeder that I know that if you want breeding quality, show quality Seabrights, you're paying $350 to $500 a bird. Yeah. Three decades or more. I think he's been breeding since the 60s, but he's improved their tolerance to Merrick's disease. And they used to not be able to breed except in really warm temperatures. And he worked really, really hard to improve that. And and it took a long, long time. Don't insult him by thinking you're going to get a cheap bird from him. Yeah. And uh, if I wanted to breed Seabrights, yeah, I'd go to him. But all I needed was a few halfway decent ones to take on the road because they're itty bitty and easy to travel with. Yeah. Yeah. I was just in Nashville with my Seabrights and it was so easy to travel with them. Coop and all. I do love the Bantams. My 13 year old daughter is in love with Seabrights. Bantam wise, I am about like the Saramas or the Pecans or the Coach and Bantams. She's like, no, we have to have seed brains. They're beautiful. They're <laughs> they beautiful. Are. They're beautiful. They're a little challenging to breed just like the Nankins. So be patient with them. I don't breed them. I got just middle of the road Seabrights, but I had them with a specific purpose in mind of traveling with them. And they're decent representatives. They're not show quality. And I tell everybody mine are a little bit bigger than they should be, but they're just my traveling birds. They're Um, educational. So they go in and help educate. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. They're a lot of fun to travel with because they're eye candy. They are gorgeous. Those are the few basics. We do have a lot of information on our website about breeding. And there's another book called The Call of the Hen. It's an old book that came out, I think, in the 1920s. Wow. You can get free electronic copies Nice out there, but it's an easy read. And if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of production selection, that would be the gold standard. And a lot of our materials are based on the the concepts within that book. So that's another great resource. Small production can be just as useful as big production. If you're a small breeder, doesn't mean you don't have big impact because you're providing market for the people that are putting a lot of birds out there. And Certainly go to poultry shows and learn from folks that are there too. The mother of all poultry shows, of course, is the Ohio National. This year is going to be celebrating the 150th anniversary of the American Poultry Association. It's going to be a huge show. You guys should do a live broadcast from there because it's going to be be amazing. It's in November, and the best of the best are going to be there, and it's going to be a huge show. There's going to be, I think, a very strong showing of turkeys and waterfowl, certainly tons of chickens. This is a really special show. 
Well, we were planning to go last year and then a lot of family problems. A happened. lot of family issues. And you're gonna be there, right? So if we I am if we grab you hell or high for, water. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we're it's a date. We're gonna grab you so you can say a few things about the birds you're seeing there. We love that idea and we should make it happen this year. Yeah, we just take our equipment with us. We can travel lightly, we can do it. So I just want to tell people about a few resources. The first is the Livestock Conservancy, obviously. Livestockconservancy.org. A membership for a year is $45 for, I think, the electronic membership is a little bit less, but it's money well spent. You can look at our 990. We spend our money very wisely, and we do a lot of good work there, not just with poultry, but with all livestock breeds. So it's money well spent, at least I like to think so. I'm a member, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. have been for a long, long time. And, 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 and yeah. if this is what you can do to help do right. a conservation project, this is worth it. This is putting your money into helping somebody else maybe get a breed going. And that's mm-hmm. the way to do it. Yeah. One thing I neglected to mention is just if you don't want to breed and say you just want to grow out some chickens for market, that's perfectly okay too. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I can arrange getting a bunch of chicks to someone and I'll give it to them for free if I can go over there in the fall and pick maybe three females and a male Mm -hmm. for my breeding program. So it's kind of a win-win where I can get more birds on the ground that way. They get free chicks, and in the end, I show them how to do selection, and I get some nice birds. And I'll pick out some for them, too. It's like, well, if you're going to breed, this and this bird's going to be good for you, and we can mark them, and then they can go on their own adventure. But that's another way, if you just want to grow out birds and not overwinter, that might be something where if you have a breeder near you that would like to get more numbers on the ground, you might be able to help them with that too. There's a lot of different options out there. So I think people don't have to jump in with both feet and try to say, okay, I'm going to breed 100 birds. There's a lot of different options out there that if you want to jump in a little bit and start, then you can get your feet wet and do some things and work for the calls. Right, right. Yeah. Listen to breeders. We drove down to Williamsburg and talked to Elaine Shirley. And, you know, she Mm -hmm. showed us what a good hen looks like. It Mm -hmm. talks breeding nankins. She's like the the nankin fairy. Everywhere she's she's spreading nankin eggs. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It was really interesting because things that I noticed, my nankin hens are extremely good layers of larger than average eggs. Mm -hmm. And Elaine said, yes, that's absolutely normal. In fact, as people are trying to resuscitate the old nankin club, Elaine was saying one of the things she wants to talk about is a standard for egg size and frequency, because Mm -hmm. if you're just getting into them, you're like, is that normal? I mean, they're big eggs. Oh, I know. I had no idea how the hens pushed those out. It's amazing. It's really amazing. I still have my very first Nankin egg. That was the very first egg laid on our farm when we first bought it. And I still have it. Oh, Oh, wow. I love that. (laughs) How do you still have it? it Yeah, I hollowed it out, special mason jar in my curio cabinet. I love that. Love it, Jeanette. Love it. So you recently, and I know I've seen links to some of these on the Livestock Conservancy social media. You've recently done some documentary work with some of the master breeders. Yeah, I'm working on that. It's one of those projects that just when I have time, I move forward. It's the Secrets of the Masters project that I'm working on with the APA and basically interviewing people that they identify as in the top of their breed. 
and to try and capture some of that knowledge. And then here at the Conservancy, we also are documenting stories of people. It's not video, but written and trying to connect with the true masters that have been doing what they've been doing a long time. And just recently, it drove home how important this all was when we lost Gerald Donnelly. Gerald Donnelly was a master breeder's master breeder. And I had the great honor to be on his farm a few years ago. And I spent a couple days wandering around with him. And every pen you looked at had fabulous birds, whether it was a goose or a chicken or a duck, everything was fabulous. Every time we turned the corner was another set of breeds out there. And we were able to document his story a couple of years ago. And thank God we did because he's gone now. I have taken video of his flocks and I'm so glad I had the opportunity to do that. So documenting the folks that come before us is a real important thing that we're committed to. And keep in mind the past because you can learn from it. With poultry, if there's some good documentation about your breed, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Just go back to the people that had them during their heyday and learn from them. If you're lucky enough to find a breed with that kind of documentation, like there's a lot on Leghorns and Plymouth Rocks and some other breeds, but for some of the more obscure European breeds, it might not be so easy. Yeah. So before we go, what do you think is one of the top breeds that will need assistance right now that a backyard farmer could help with? Gosh, there are a bunch. A good one, and it's an egg layer, is the white-faced black Spanish There aren't a lot of people raising them, but I was talking with Privet Hatchery during our census, and they have a very, very nice line of white-faced black Spanish. So if you're looking to get into a breed and start off with good quality birds, that might be one to start with. And they also have a very good quality flock of Yokohamas, which are a different breed, not for everybody. And it's not really a meat bird. It's not an egg bird. It's more an ornamental bird, but they're pretty to look at. They don't take up a lot of space. They've got a nice flock of them. And what's really been great, it's not only privet, all of the hatcheries now are starting to think about breed standard Not all their birds are going to be APA standard, but that doesn't mean they don't care about standard. It's just being in the hatchery business, you've got to make money. And I give snaps to all of the hatcheries I've talked to now. They all care about what their birds look like. Don't assume a hatchery has less than optimal birds. Sometimes they've got better stuff than you'll find in any backyard. I want to give props out to McMurray Hatchery. They are trying with those red caps. And like you said, those are the rarest of the rare right now that they're trying to get back out there. Yep. And they've got some fine craft cores now. Yes. uh, (laughs) I was talking with Hoover Hatchery. They have a breeding flock of 500 craft cores now. Wow. Wow. John, you're awesome if you're hearing this. (laughs) I'm so pleased to see numbers on the ground because that's the only way we're going to maintain quality. It's the numbers game and the hatcheries can yeah. do stuff that we can't. So and sometimes that's the only way some people can get the birds at all. Right. Is to get them yeah. from a hatchery. And I guess and you gotta start somewhere. Right. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the bloodlines of crabs I work with were a hatchery line, but they were purebred crev cores. They were inbred and small, but they contributed to the overall success of the conservation program. That's awesome. 
So as we wrap up, I want to mention a couple things. The first is that we're just wrapping up sheep month at the Livestock Conservancy. Mm-hmm. You have my two favorite months back to back. So sheep month. And then March, when this episode drops, is chicken month. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have lots and lots of interesting breeds on your social media. Everybody go over yes. and check it out. Yep. We will have links to the Livestock Conservancy. If you haven't joined, go join. Uh, you can do a monthly. Yes, actually you can. That's what I do. I just make a donation every month and it renews automatically and I don't have to worry about it. We set ours up that way just because it's easier. So you can do that. You can do the regular $45 membership, but join. You can also buy lots of stuff in your online shop and that also helps (laughs) contribute. You've got an amazing variety of books that could be quite helpful. Yeah. My favorite swag is my license plate. I put on the front of my car and I can't tell you how many people look at it. It's got the old logo, that beautiful that one. colored one. You could put it on your gator. You could put it on your car, on your bicycle. It's really beautiful. And mine's lasted for years. I'm finally going to have to give up the one on my car and I got a new one to replace it now. But that's by far my favorite piece of Conservancy swag. Nice. You're just helping by supporting the Conservancy. So oh, go yeah. do it. It's a good thing to do. Okay, so I'll have links to everything we talked about in the show notes. Jeanette, thank you so much for joining us. We always have the most fascinating conversations with you, and I'm hoping that some of our listeners learned a lot here. You bring so much wisdom to our show. We love you. Thank you so much for coming on. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. We just want to thank Jeanette for coming onto the show one more time. We do love talking to Jeanette. She has so much great information. If you have not checked out the Livestock Conservancy's offerings, Go to livestockconservancy.org, and we would encourage you to join. It's a great organization. It is. Okay, so let's move on to... Cracking the eggs. Cracking those eggs. This week's recipe, we're talking... Veggie and egg fried rice. Fried rice, I have to admit, is one of my all-time favorites. Oh, it's yummy. It's so good. And what makes it so good is that scrambled egg and the rice. Mm -hmm. So this week, we wanted comfort food, but we wanted some veg in it. Yes. We went with the fried rice because this is one that you can make your own. I like broccoli and different things like that in the fried rice. Essentially, you need about one and a half cups to about two cups of mixed vegetables. It's your choice what veggies you use. It's your choice. I like carrots and broccoli and peas and asparagus. I like mushrooms, although I'll caution you, if you're going to use mushrooms, cook them first because it takes them a long time to cook down. Not the biggest fan of mushrooms, Joe is, but I do put some in for him sometimes. So you want to start with a diced onion. Yes. Now, I do fried rice in my wok. Do you do it in a walk? I do not have a walk. I used to use a walk at my mom's house. She has a walk, but I just do it in a really big skillet. I don't walk to a walk to use the walk. (laughs) No, I just use a really big skillet these days. This is a four egg recipe because your girls are probably laying pretty well by now. Yeah, four eggs is not going to be a bad thing to get right now. I'm getting like 10 plus a day right now. So four eggs is really good. Yeah, I'm getting a lot. Yeah. You're going to need some soy sauce and you can these days get gluten-free soy sauce. I use it here when you're here. You know what I got the other day that I'd never seen before? It is a sweet soy sauce for rice and it's gluten-free. Wow. Yep. Yep. Nice. It's good too. And the other thing you get to use in this recipe that I have that I loved is my five spice powder. You don't use five spice powder a lot. I know. You don't use it enough and you always have it in your spice cabinet. 
And this is the one where you get to use it and you get to use the toasted sesame oil. It's another thing I always have in my spices that you only get to use when you do the fried rice. That's good. The toasted sesame oil. I really like that. You also want four cups of cooked rice. Right. And you want it cooked because you want it dried a little bit. Yeah. It works better that way. So you're going to start with cracking your eggs into a bowl and beating them. So they're ready to go. So they're ready to go. You're going to set them aside. Then you're going to either use your wok or you're going to use a large skillet. So you're going to put a generous amount of oil in there and then you're going to heat that skillet to like medium high. Right. You want it on the high side. You're going to add the onions and you're going to cook them stirring constantly until they're starting to soften. A couple of minutes. And then add your veggies. The veggies you want to cook until they're nice and bright. Right. They're still going to be crisp. Yeah. But when they cook to a certain level that they're ready to go, they're bright in color. Yeah. The same way they would be if you steamed them. Exactly. Yep. Once your vegetables are in, you're going to salt them a little bit. Right. Add add your salt right there. You're going to stir them. Then you're going to add the cooked rice and you're going to cook that until the rice is heated through. Once the rice is heated through, you can add your seasonings. The ones that you really like to add that you don't get to use a lot, which is the five spice powder, your white pepper, your sesame oil. And your soy, soy sauce. sauce, right? And you're going to mix it all and keep cooking it until it's all warm. Then at the very end, is that's the fun part. That's right. That's when you add the eggs. Push the vegetables and the rice to the, to the side. side. You add the eggs and you use your spatula to kind of drag the spatula through. Right. So and then that makes all those little tiny pieces yeah. that mixes all in through the rice. Mm-hmm. And then once it's all cooked, you stir it again. You can garnish it with sliced scallions. That's optional. And, and that's then, a meal. And you serve it right away. Yeah. It's a vegetarian meal. In our family, we're trying to do vegetarian at least once a week or like more. That. Yeah. And this is really hearty and satisfying with just the veg, the rice, and the egg in it. It's known to be a comfort food. It's delicious dinner. And I got to tell you, I like it for breakfast. You can change the veggies and change it up to a different feel. You can even change the protein. I mean, even though we love the egg in there, you can use something else. Like what? You could throw shrimp in there. Oh, yeah. You're saying instead of egg. But I thought what makes the fried rice is the egg. Like you could put the shrimp in, but well, keep Well, that's the what egg. makes it yummy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you could do anything you want. Completely customizable. And great. Let us know what you think. It's a good, quick, non-carry-out, better-for-you, <laughs> vegetarian option. Okay. So are we ready to move on to retail therapy? Retail therapy. Yeah. yeah. This week's Retail Therapy, we are talking about Roosty's new Chick Feeder and Water set. They had a set that came out last year, and this set is new and improved. New and improved, right. And they're amazing. They've tweaked the design a little bit. One of the things I really like about them is that it's BPA-free plastic. And you don't want your chickens getting that in their water because what they put in, we're eating in the eggs. Yeah, and it can't be good for them to have BPA in their system. So the waterer is the same design that we loved last year. Oh, yeah. The narrower but deeper moat that's harder for your chicks to kick crap into. And when we say that, we mean it. When you think of chick waterer, the first thing I think of is I put that thing in there. Within two seconds, there are shavings in that water because they kick instantly. When we tried their product last year, it was a game changer. It really is, yeah. That deep moat in the water makes such a huge difference. It's just amazing. It really is. And then as your chicks get bigger, you have the adjustable legs. They have three different positions. So you have three different heights. By the end, honestly, I usually end up with it up on a brick or something like that anyway. I think I did that too. As they grow, it grows with them. Now, here's the really good new part, the feeder. Oh, yeah. Game changer. 
you get them as a set. It has a much wider base. So we all know we're never going to have just one chick in there. Right. So the chicks have a lot of room to stretch out around the base of the feeder. So let's talk about the lid. The lid is fantastic. When you're using a chick feeder, you're unscrewing it, you fill it up, and you're trying to screw it back on. And, and you're losing the food. Sending feed everywhere. This one, the lid comes off the top. You can fill it right from the top. One million percent game changer in your chick game. It's so much easier. So you put this down in the brooder. You start off flat. You have three different levels. It gets taller. As they get taller, you put it up. But the best thing about this product is the lid. Because yeah. once you stick that feeder down, you don't have to move it until you're cleaning your brooder. Because you take the lid off, you pour the food in. Right. It's amazing. It really is great. I also like the fact that the plastic, not only is it PPA-free, but the plastic is a really high grade of plastic. Yes. And you're going to notice it instantly. It does not crack easily. I mean, I'm not saying jump on it, but it really holds up well. It doesn't deteriorate as fast as cheaper plastic. When you get these feeders out, you're going to notice a difference between the ones that you buy inexpensively when you buy your chicks at the store. They're right there. There's a hundred of them. These are more high quality Sometimes you get what you pay for. And with these, they have the little things, the deep moat. They have the wide mouth feeding. They have the legs. You get chicks one year, you're going to get chicks another year and another year. And you don't want to keep buying feeders over and over again. I've been down that road. Oh, it's junk going into the landfill. Yeah. yeah. This is one set you're going to buy that's going to save you all along. And it grows with the chickens. They do have a handle, which one, makes it easier to carry. But two, you can hang the feeder in water if you want to. Because I know some people do prefer to hang them in their uh, brooder. They're just a great product. Here's the other great thing about Roosties. You don't have to go find some website somewhere. Go straight to Amazon. Go to our show notes. We have links right there. But you can just go to Amazon and put Roosties in and their products come up and you're going to have them in a day or so right to your house. You can also go to our Amazon storefront. I do have them linked there as well. Exactly. If you're on Instagram, hit our bio. We have them linked right at our Amazon storefront. You can't go wrong with this product. It's top quality. Okay, so should we tell everybody what we're going to be talking about next week? Next week is a little bit of a direction change. Oh, yes, it is. Since we had so much good feedback when we did the turkey breed spotlight for Thanksgiving, we're doing a duck episode. The whole thing, the duck episode. It's going to be so much fun. Breed spotlight. We are profiling a heritage breed duck, the Saxony. Yes, we are. Main topic, we have Lisa Steele on the show. She's coming in as our resident duck expert. She's going to talk all things duck, from setting up your duck brooder. To picking a duck breed. Mm-hmm. And how to set up your flock. Our cracking the eggs, Lisa was generous enough to share a recipe from her Duck Eggs Daily book, Devil Duck Eggs. It's going to be good. Simple and amazing. And retail therapy. We're reviewing the brewer's yeast additive from Lisa's line. If you listen to the episode, you'll understand why this is important. Yeah. Okay. So what should we tell everybody to do until next week? Hug your chickens. Every day and kiss them too. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. If you'd like to see more of us, please follow us on Instagram at Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. If you'd like to help us grow the podcast, please leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, please visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash coffee with the chicken ladies. Thanks for listening.